Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like an enthusiastic collector because Ooh. you and I both met through collecting art and living with art and saving all our money, which was quite an eccentric thing to be doing in our early 20s. But yeah. we both did do it. And we both started off collecting when we were kids, um, all kinds of ephemera. And I know you were even a bit of a geek collecting like rocks and crystals and kind of um what was it you collected rocks and minerals and fossils that's right and you even went to like crazy rocks and minerals fair or society conventions i know my eighth birthday yeah um and today's (laughs) guest is an extraordinary uh communicator um a very uh kind of people person he always made me feel incredibly welcome when i've been um around the world at different events because he is the global director of one of the greatest institutions in the art world um called art basel and art basel for those who don't know i mean i'm sure a lot of you will know but for those who don't know is the world's leading art fair and it pretty much pioneered the whole space of art fairs um introducing new collectors all over the world to contemporary art and to older art as well like all kinds of art but it's really created this huge um very kind of glamorous platform in many ways because it's definitely the kind of thing that when an art basel art fair is about to open everybody wants a ticket everybody wants to be at the preview um not just because they want to see the art first which obviously all art collectors would Mm. um but also there is this kind of amazing um, very glamorous scene around it. Like I was even in Art Basel, Miami one year and Madonna threw a party that we all ended up going to and she sang live and was raising money for Malawi. So there's a lot of kind of um, events that happen around the art fair. So it becomes this kind of cultural phenomenon. And we are so excited to meet the global director of the whole of Art Basel today. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Mark, Mark Spiegler. Spiegler. Hi, Mark. Wow. What a welcome. Um, Robert Russell, it's great to be here. And uh, I'm looking forward to your questions. Uh, (laughs) Cards on the table. uh, I had you on my podcast uh, a few weeks ago. So it'll be very interesting to be the one answering the questions this time around. That's right. We're turning it back on you now. We're turning the tables like you did to us. Um, Yeah, we love coming on your podcast. And we definitely did explore Russell's quirky history of art collecting, (laughs) object collecting in that episode. So do check that out. Absolutely. Mark, did you know that um, if you do a Google search on you for research, if you change one letter of your name from a C to a K, you end up delving into <laughs> an agent in LA of female pornographic actresses? No, Russell. <laughs> Were you aware of that? I'm sure you are. I, 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 I am well aware of this. Um, I was like, oh, right. So that's so he moonlights as a, as a global director of Basel, but normally he's actually a porn, no, porn this agent. Is, this, is, this is not my side gig. I only have one job, which is running Art Basel. Oh um, that has come across sometimes. Right. Uh, um, right. When people misspell my name, I try to correct them so that they don't get, end up in interesting Google searches. Yeah. And, and I'll say without going into detail, into details that occasionally I've gotten uh, audition emails from people, <gasps> which I then forward to the real Mark Spiegler. Oh, wow. Well, Crazy. there you go. An audience, good to know. Well, we're definitely talking to <laughs> M-A-R-C, uh, Mark yes. Spiegler. Yes. Yeah, so Mark, you originally started out as a journalist, which I don't know if everyone will know, because, I mean, my whole... Um, you know, understanding of who you were was always kind of linked to Art Basel in a way, um, because you're a very gregarious, kind of um, sociable, uh, happy, wonderful person. But can you speak a bit about the history of, of your career? Yeah, of course. Um, 
So I was indeed a journalist for 15 years, which is almost as long as I've been at Art Basel as the director. Um, and I started out as what's called a general assignment reporter, meaning I wrote about a lot of different things. And this was in Chicago. I had gone to the University of Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. So I was a properly trained journalist, so to speak. Um, and then I moved to a, and I wrote about all sorts of things. I wrote about skateboarding. I wrote about walking across the entire city of Chicago, which is uh, 26 miles. It's literally a, a marathon. I wrote about, I won a prize for a story about gay rodeo, which is an interesting subculture. Um, interesting nods from both of you on that one. <laughs> yes. um, no, I've seen, I've seen clips. I've, I've heard about it. Yeah, it's a whole yeah. thing, a movement. Um, but I also edited a literary review and occasionally wrote art gallery reviews. And um, I was then asked to join Chicago Magazine, which is a monthly magazine in Chicago. And I wrote about power in the broadest sense of the word, uh, media, politics, and business. And at one point, I became interested in the very difficult situation at the time of the MCA Chicago, which had a lot of difficulties with its board, with its donors. And what struck me was that a lot of the people I was writing about for Chicago Magazine in politics, media, and business were in one way or another involved in the arts. And so that was my first insight into the way that the art world brings in via their passions and investments a lot of people who are at the height of other professions. Um, mm. That article was widely noticed within the art press. And as a result of that, I was approached by um, Bruce Wilmer, who was a very interesting figure at the time. He was the editor-in-chief of Art and Auction magazine. And he asked me to be their local reporter in Chicago. And so I started writing for them. And a few years earlier, I had met Sam Keller, who at the time was the head of communications for Art Basel um, and would go on to be the director. Um, and I, for personal reasons, moved to Switzerland in the late 90s. And when I went there, I went there without a job. And so what I did was I went around to every single editorial office that would allow me to step in the door, in New York especially, and say, hey, I'm moving to Switzerland. Uh, do you think there might be some work for you there, so to speak? And I said, do you think it might be possible that I could write for you, for your magazine, from Switzerland? And it turned out that there weren't a lot of great English language art journalists working in Switzerland at the time. And so I pretty rapidly started writing for a bunch of art magazines in the in Switzerland, as well as, as a lot of tech magazines. So I wrote a lot about the first new economy, the one that collapsed in 2002 or so. Um, and when that happened, I started to write more and more about the art world. And what was interesting to me, having written about and lived through the collapse of the tech economy, and of course, all the magazines I was writing for about the tech economy, um, was the extent to which these things were somehow related in the sense that both of these were markets which were very much shaped by perception. You know, there is no real demonstrable value for an artwork. It really is about how do people perceive the artist? How do people perceive the gallery working with the artist? And so it was a fascinating business to write about. And I'm not really a business person. I couldn't see myself writing about stock markets or, or I don't know, uh, derivatives or, or this kind of thing. But the art market was fascinating to me, um, not only in terms of its dynamics and the way that things evolved within it, and its structures and the various roles that all the different 
people played within it. It was also fascinating to me in terms of its content. Um, and that's more my personal history. My mother, I think, is one of the only, if not the only, surrealist paper cutter in the history of the art world. Um, and my best friend growing up, Sorry, Ellen, Mark, you're going to have to go back on that, Mark. What do you mean your mum was a surrealist <laughs> paper cutter? And then you just well, like, so she, skip across that. Amazing. Well, <laughs> she, she, she grew up in Alsace, in eastern France, and was taught the traditional skill of paper cutting, um, in which people take paper and they cut it with scissors or with exacto knives to make images, which are then affixed to backgrounds to make, you know, two-dimensional objects that you hang on the wall. Um, but being who she is, she followed surrealism as a, as a genre and then fell in in Chicago with a group of Chicago surrealists who had a linkage back to the Parisian surrealist scene. And so, you know, I grew up with a mom who was, you know, hanging out with artists, was an artist herself, uh, had a couple of shows, never made any real money from it. But definitely I grew up with an artistic family. I was the kind of kid that was dragged to museums and then kept going once I had a choice about it. And then nice. my best friend, Ellen, who I met when I was two, and then my best friend, Yoni, who I met when I was 14, went on to be painters. Um, again, neither of them particularly famous, but both of whom I met a lot of artists through. And so somehow I was always hanging out with artists, going to shows, but it was never my profession. But one of the beauties of being a journalist is that once you learn to get a story, and to tell the story, to write the story, you can pretty quickly change focus areas, you know, because what the fundamental is you know how to do reporting, you know how to do reading, you know how to follow a story, you get a nose for the story, you know how to take what the French would call a tour d'horizon to sort of look along the horizon and see what's coming. And so um, that was the way in the late 90s and early 2000s that my personal interest in art became a professional interest in art. I became, at the time, considered one of the leading writers about the art market and how it was evolving, which was a very interesting time you know, within the art market. It was a time when it became more global. It was a time when I think fairs became more and more important. It was the beginning of the influ influence of the internet upon the art world. Mm. And so that was my history as a journalist. By the time I joined Art Basel in 2007, I was writing almost exclusively about the art world. And I even had started a blog with a couple of friends called Art World Salon, which somehow very quickly became very popular in some circles and derided in other circles. <laughs> Did you ever want to become an artist yourself? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, uh, I think like most people who write for a living, I, I played around with writing a poem here or there, some short stories, but it was never... I never thought about making work and showing it in galleries or museums or any of that kind of thing. What, so, what but, is it about the art market then that, that fascinated you? Because you, you were like writing about uh, the tech industry and you were saying there is a correlation between the art market, but what, what specifically makes it uh, fascinating for you? First and foremost, the people, I think. You know, I had written about Chicago politics, which is a whole intense version of politics because in Chicago there are, you know, basically everyone is a Democrat. So it's really politics and it's purest power form. But I wrote about politics. I wrote about business. And if you could sum it up in a sentence, it would be the following one. In politics, most people are boring mm -hmm. and the interesting ones hide it. 
And in the art world, most people are interesting, and the boring ones hide it. <laughs> so so the, the cast of characters, uh, you know, artists, gallerists, of course, collectors, curators, critics, they were all interesting people. They were all people who, given, you know, their intelligence, potentially their access to capital, their creativity, their drive, could all have made much more money in things like marketing or real estate or luxury and chose for whatever reason, I guess like myself, to be within the art world because they liked to be around art, because they were fascinated by artists, because perhaps they saw artists, especially as people who see things earlier than Mm. other people do Mm. and don't translate that into a kind of it's not a linear version of what they see. It's a more elliptical version of what they see. You know, that it's, it's, it's kind of the difference between prose and poetry. You know, both are equally powerful, but one is more, more musical, you know. So I think it's really, it's a really, it was an interesting world to be in. I liked the people in the mm-hmm. art world. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, um, I'm a political scientist by training. That was my, that was my, history. Both of my parents were social scientists. Um, and the structure of the art world, the way in which value and power shifted and were built were also interesting to me. You know, the role, the evolving or devolving role of criticism, you know, the evolving role more recently of social media, the way in which galleries identified and then built up artists, artists, um, were all really interesting to me. And so it was a very interesting terrain to write about because it was constantly evolving and because it was taking an ever more global dimension to it. Yeah, I, I've always felt that the art world's so unique as well. It's not really like any other industry. You can see parallels, of course, but I do think there's always a kind of constant evolution and it never stays the same or sits still, largely because it's driven by the art and the artists who who are pushing things forward so drastically and radically. It's mm. That's kind of why it's so exciting, I think, for all of us to be part of it. So in the 2000s, when you joined Art Basel, obviously Art Basel had been around and was very... Um, kind of developed, uh, important, successful business already. But I do feel like in the time that you've been there, like in your tenure in a sense, um, it's really transformed and kind of grown on a global scale. Can you speak a bit about the early days of Art Basel, like, you know, back in the 1970s when when it was first founded solely in Switzerland and then how it's grown um, into kind of like an iconic international brand, really? Of course, I mean I can speak about this for for hours, so I'll try to keep it short. And you can just <laughs> yeah. you can just dig in where you feel. Well, can, that it's can we more... can we also just before we do that, it would be nice to have like an art Basel for dummies for people listening that are like, what is it? What is art Basel? If you can, I'm gonna, these might be quick fire questions. Good for one. You. Yeah. What is art Basel? Fundamentally, the way most people think of art Basel is as a fair, a fair organization. When we started in 1970. Art Basel was, I believe, the second art fair to come into into existence. The first one having been Art Cologne, which had started a few years earlier. And all art fairs at some level operate along the same model, which is that a lot of galleries are invited or selected to take part. They bring work. The fair sets up booths and lights and, uh, you know, some sort of promotional organization, um, whether that's PR or VIP teams or social media or that kind of thing. Um, the fundamental goal, of course, is to make 
your gallery successful, meaning that you drive patronage to their artists. Fundamentally, what we do is we set up an ephemeral marketplace, an ephemeral urbanism, you know, and you try to lay out the galleries in such a way that the people who know a gallery come to that gallery and then they find other similar galleries from around the world who have artists that might interest them as well. But basically what we do is we set up a, a platform for sales that lasts, you know, five or six days. And how do, um, gal- you said galleries are invited to reply. How do galleries get, you know, chosen? Are some just getting a green light, like the big blue chip ones? Are they just automatically in every year? And if you're a younger gallery, how do you apply? And do some people apply and not get let in? Um, so fundamentally, every gallery in our fairs has to apply every year. And every application is reviewed by a selection, by a selection committee of gallerists. Um, and you choose those gallerists, you try to compose a committee which represents a wide range of knowledge, which represents a wide range of geographies, they look at the dossiers that are submitted, um, in some cases for the overall galleries program, in some cases for a specific project, and they choose between them. And so obviously a legendary gallery like Marion Goodman is always going to get in, but they nonetheless have to submit an application because that's the procedure. And what is um, in the application? The artists they're bringing? Or the, the, artists, the artists they represent, okay. um, the shows that they're doing, uh, the shows that they're supporting, you know, the biennial shows, museum shows, maybe their publications history, maybe the events that they're doing at the gallery that are more of an educational nature, talks, book launches, et cetera. Um, and depending on the type of gallery, you would judge it differently. Like a primary market gallery, you rep- you judge based upon what they're doing within their ecosystem. Are they identifying artists? Are they promoting those artists' careers? Are they building alliances with other galleries around those artists' careers, right? A secondary market gallery is judged slightly differently. They're judged more strictly on the quality of the work that they're bringing to the fairs. You know, are you able to get great consignments? Do you have inventory? Can you put together a great booth? Because you're not getting it from the artists. You're getting it from other collectors. You're getting it from work that you've stocked up over the years. Mm. Um, You're getting it from other galleries, potentially. Um, But in any case... What you want is to build a kind of symphony orchestra where every gallery is a different instrument and they're all playing in a way that makes sense. And obviously different fairs have different concepts, but our concept for all of our fairs is roughly the same, which is that we want to create a great cross-section of work from 1900 until now. You know, So you want great early 20th century work, you know, Kandinsky, Picasso, Brock, Duchamp, but you also want the most cutting-edge artists from all over the world. Um, and and then ideally, what you want is to be able to walk through our halls and experience a cross-section of the last 12 decades of art history. Does every gallery pay the same fee to be a part of the fair? No, they do not. Um, for a long time, you paid based upon the number of square meters that were in your booth. And then obviously for the younger galleries, there would be special sectors, which would be more subsidized because of course they're at a different stage of their businesses. But in the main sector of the fair, you would pay per square meter. 
What we realized about half a dozen years ago is that there are still galleries who are well-established enough to be in the main sector of the fair, mm. but who are still at a, ra- at a radically different stage of their career than somebody like White Cube or Gagosian mm. or Marion Goodman. Um, and so what we did is we introduced what's called a sliding scale. And the way that works is the bigger your booth is, the more you pay per square meter. A little bit like taxes, right? The higher your income is, the greater a percentage of it you pay to the government, unless mm-hmm. you're a tax cheat. Um, but th- the idea there was to really create a system which, which sort of compensated for the fact that you have radically different galleries within our shows, even in the main sector of the fair, with radically different economies. And for example, when people enter the fair for the first year, they now get 20% off of their booth and 10% off the next year. The logic being that learning how to play in the main gallery sector can sometimes be a difficult transition. And so you want to give people help there. And one of the astounding things when we put the sliding scale through was the extent to which the biggest galleries who were seeing a jump in the price of their booths supported it. Because what they recognized was that those younger galleries are an essential part of the ecosystem. You know, And this is something you wouldn't see uber saying yeah of course you know we'll take a smaller profit margin than lyft or you know some other local um gig economy kind of transport service you know what you saw on the part of the big galleries again people like white cube or david's werner or Tadeus ropak was that they recognized the value of having a very very heterogeneous ecosystem of younger galleries mid-level galleries and highly well highly established galleries so it's a support system. It's like a, uh, a cooperative network, as it were. You're all working together for the common goal of getting the best art in there. At some level, yes, because in the end, the calculation, either conscious or unconscious, that any gallery makes when it goes to a fair is that they are going to go to the fair, bring their artists, bring their collectors, and in a sense, share them. Yeah. With other galleries. And the logic, I think, is on the one hand, there's the risk that a collector who collects with me will start collecting with other galleries. On the other hand, I'll get new collectors. And maybe most important of all, people will collect more when they're in that kind of environment. You know, there's a great book called Crowds and Power by Elias Canetti, which I I recommend to anyone, whether they're a, a DJ or a church vicar or an art gallerist or an art fair organizer. And the notion is that basically once you achieve a certain mass of people in a, in a space, things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. And we see this all the time. We see people coming in and saying, hey, listen, I'm not here to buy art. You know, I'm really just here to look. You know, I don't have any budget. And then five hours later, they're walking away with half a dozen new purchases because they just got excited and they saw their friends buying and maybe they got competitive or maybe they were encouraged by people collecting or maybe seeing other people buy validated the notion of collecting art for them that day, despite whatever else might be going on in their life. And that's, that's the fundamental dynamic of a fair. It's about bringing great people, you know, great galleries, great collectors together in a space, and then creating an environment in which the notion of buying art seems like the single most important thing that you could do that day. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. When you're in that fair, it just feels like you yeah. are, you know you're driven yeah and you know to come back to that symphonic metaphor like 
if one instrument is playing badly or if a whole section is playing badly, like everything kind of falls apart, which is why it's so important that every single gallery in the fair does the best possible job that it can on that day um, so that the whole fair feels strong. You know, because if you're a collector and you're both collectors and there are four booths in a row and the first three, booth, three booths really feel kind of randomly put together, they feel kind of like merchandise shops or sample sales. By the time you get to the fourth booth, you are kind of deflated and you're maybe questioning the whole notion of collecting art that day. But if the first three booths are magnificent, even if they're not works you collect or they're out of your price range, by the fourth booth, which has the work that you would collect, you're excited to support galleries and artists. Mm. Yeah, it's all psychological. I've got two more questions in, quick ones. Um, the first one is that people will be thinking, how much does it cost to rent a space at Basel? It really depends on the size of the space. You so know, the biggest the, space you can get, how much would that be? The biggest booth you can get would be about $140,000. Okay. For the whole whole period of the fair. For a huge, yeah, yeah. Um, but, of course, that's only a small portion of the cost of doing a fair. Right? If you have that big a booth, you're also shipping work from all over the world. You've probably got... 15 to 20 people on site as part of your sales team. You've got art handlers. You know, you're probably throwing a couple of big dinners for your collectors, maybe even a huge party. Um, so the biggest galleries could be spending as much as half a million dollars, all told, for their yeah. fare, right? But the smallest galleries, if you have a gallery that's coming from Switzerland and they're in the statement section of the fair, they might be spending $20,000 all told. They might be staying in a three-star hotel, you know, they might be staying in a youth hostel, you know. I really value the big galleries and the commitment that they have and, and the ways in which they contribute to bringing major projects to the show. But I think probably the galleries for whom we do the most are the ones at the beginning of their career because what we do is we put them on an international stage and we expose them to collectors from all over the world. I remember when we started in Hong Kong, on the first day of the show, uh, my friends from Mendes Wood, a gallery in Brazil, came up to me and they said, Mark, it's the craziest thing. We sold a bunch of videos, which as you both know, is probably the hardest thing to sell. We sold a bunch of videos to collectors in mainland China. You know, and suddenly we have collectors in mainland China. And that's not going to happen if you're sitting in your gallery in Sao Paulo waiting for that to happen. That's, that's the value of what a fair can do. A fair can really, you know, really put you on that stage. Final question then for the hot seating. Who is allowed into the art fair? Who's invited? You mean as a visitor? Yeah. I mean, for the first couple of days, you have to be invited either by us or by a gallery. And obviously what we want in the first couple of days, the VIP days, are the people who are really high value to the galleries. Those can be their collectors. It can be their potential collectors. But it's also, and this is super important, museum directors and biennial curators and important art journalists and all the people who are in one way or another help the artists to become successful and help their galleries to become successful. And then afterwards, anybody can buy a ticket. So, and that's an important thing to us. And, and for example, in all of our fairs, one way or another, 
we try to make sure that there's a, a, a way for younger people to come, either with student tickets or with school groups. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes gallerists will say, wow, there's all these kids running around, you know, and sometimes they didn't check their backpacks. And obviously I understand that. <clears throat> but my response is always, you never know which of these kids is going to become a gallerist or is going to become an artist or is going to become the CEO of a company who supports your museum or becomes one of your collectors. And I think we always have to keep an eye on the very present moment, but also on the future. I know that Russell and I have had friends in the past who didn't really understand the art world. And a great thing to do is to say to them, go to Art Basel or go to an art fair and walk around, you know, without even thinking about buying yet, but just go around and explore and write down the names of the artists that you love. And, um, you know, and just go with like a complete kind of clear mind, don't have any preconceptions and don't judge anything and just go around like that. And also, I think people don't understand how important art fairs are to galleries because such a huge part of their yearly income can come from those fairs. It's a bit like you're saying, it kind of ends up almost paying the rents and the jobs and all of these kind of other parts from behind the scenes that you just take for granted, you know, pays the beat, sorry, pays the heating bills, pays everything. And, um, and also just the continued um, custom that even we get as a gallery, if you do an art fair, you know, often you'll get, I don't know, 60% brand new customers who then keep buying from you through the year, who then become like a new family member in a sense, like you, you do meet those people in these unique situations. So I think art fairs are so important and probably, um, yeah, they're, they're really, really up there. I think what you were saying uh, about this, sorry, Mark, I was just thinking about what you said about this um, connection where collectors get kind of enthusiastic around each other. I've always loved them because it's a trading of information. Is it you'll bump into a collector <laughs> yeah. and you'll be like, well, what have you been looking at? They'll be like, go and check out this booth. This artist is amazing. We've acquired this. I think there's a few available where it's completely sold out. And you get you get this you get all like the the buzz of what's what's super kind of exciting going on at the moment what's available what 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 galleries are bringing what and it's it's the conversations as well that are you know manufactured within the tent yeah yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting aspect of it i mean we'll see this at the venice biennial i mean if you've been you know this dynamic where you can't see the whole venice biennial on the first day so some people go see the national pavilions and some people see the external pavilions and some people see the show that's put on by the curator in this case to Alemani. And then you go out to dinner or you go out for drinks or you get lost in Venice and meet people on corners and you say, Hey, what did you see? What should I see? And you, you know, one of the things I've always enjoyed my, my Venice biennial routine is to go to the Giardini the first day and see all the national pavilions and then try to see the show that's been put together by the curator and then to constantly take notes and say, what did you see in the external pavilions? And kind of make a hit list of 20 or 30 people. And then somehow or other scrounge a water taxi. And then on the third day, go and just see those 30 pavilions scattered all over Venice, you know, on faraway islands and, you know, tucked into little palazzos. And I think that kind of trading of information is really essential. It's, you know, between collectors. And of course, a lot of it happens now by text message and social media and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's an essential dynamic. And it's it's why during the pandemic, I never believed this notion that art fairs were over because I think there's something very specific about having a few hundred galleries and thousands of collectors and curators and museum directors in the same space feeding off of each other's excitement and feeding off of information from each other. 
I think also Art Basel has done a great job to kind of expand um, it into almost like a cultural festival outside of just the art fair. And like you're talking about, galleries do host these very extravagant, glamorous parties with celebrities and all kinds of um, iconic people from different industries that all come together under one roof. But can you speak a bit about the, the kind of future of Art Basel? And I know you've developed it so much through talks and through um, even like in Miami, for example, when you have like public sculptures and there's even an evening where we all meet outside and everyone walks around and sees all these incredible public sculptures like how do you keep the fair relevant to new audiences and how do you bring in new people it's interesting i think you know when i think about our basel's history there are three distinct stages you know the first stage which was roughly the first 25 years was one in which it was really a commercial event it was very much about the fair within the halls and the people who came to sell and the people who came to buy um and then in the mid 90s, um, but especially starting in the early 2000s, uh, because we went to Miami Beach and we launched an entirely new fair there, um, it became more of a cultural event. It became an event that we thought about and that people in the art world thought about, not so much as just a fair within the halls, but as a moment in a city. And our job and those of everyone around us was to make sure that it was an exciting week you know, and that started with, you know, great collectors like the the Dela Cruzes and the Rubels opening up their homes, opening up their warehouses um, in the morning. Um, and then, of course, you would have the fair during the day. And in the evening, you would have concerts on the beach, concerts at hotels. You would have performances. You would have parties. And I think this notion that you're just really taking a deep bath in the art world. Um, and you can, it's a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. You don't have to go to all, all the parties. But, of course, um this notion that an art fair is something that it, that occupies a city that that maybe transforms that city for that week mm. um, that makes it a place where the whole art world comes together was new um and of course it, it wasn't limited to our fairs the other fairs you know did it as well freeze is, is the same for example um and then in and that was all before my time but you know in the 2010 period um, there were two big things that that really changed our enterprise. One was the fact that we went to Hong Kong in, and we launched our Basel Hong Kong in 2013. And the other was social media and the internet in general. And, and what that meant was that suddenly we went from being, you know, first one fair in Basel and then two fairs in Basel and Miami Beach and really like the, the week in Basel and Miami Beach. And then we were suddenly a global entity in the sense that not only were we really in Asia, um, and not occasionally on a visit, but we were really playing a major role within the art world there. But also the fact that because of the internet, we're sort of present in one way or another, 24-7, 365. And so what that meant was Art Basel became a global entity in the art world, not just something that popped on and off of people's radars three times per year, but one that really played a broader role, you know, and, and that took a lot of forms. You know, one of the interesting ones that we, was that we did a big project with Kickstarter, um, when crowdfunding was a relatively new thing. And what we did there was to work with nonprofits all over the world and to help raise funds via the Kickstarter crowdfunding model. Um, I think 13,500 people contributed, more than 2 million was raised for about 70 projects in places like Kabul and Calcutta. And like one of my proudest moments was standing in a space that was run by a former Tate curator called Flora. 
And he pointed out the back window and he said, you know, that's the Art Basel library. I said, what do you mean that's the Art Basel library? He said, well, that's the library that we're building for this neighborhood using the funds from the Kickstarter project. Oh, wow. And so that was a really, that was a really much broader notion of what Art Basel was, you know? And then you also get weird, weird twists on this, like, um, unbeknownst to us, one time in Art Basel Miami Beach, Adidas launched a shoe called the Adidas Art Basel model um, without us knowing it. And of course, uh, on the one hand, there was a copyright infringement lawsuit that followed, naturally. Um, on the other hand, when I took a step back, I said, isn't it strange that what started as basically a convention in Basel has now become this global brand that one of the biggest sneaker companies in the world is attaching to one of its shoes. And so the notion of what Art Basel is, is so different for so many different people. Mm. You know, I remember, I remember going to the last show that Virgil Abloh did in his lifetime in Paris, which was in July of last year. And the, there was this hype man who was sort of getting people excited before the, the show started and he said, the show is going to be like Coachella meets Art Basel. And I was like, wow, what does that mean? And Mia was playing at the end. But it was also kind of, you know, again, it's sort of how far have we come that for a lot of people, a trade fair, fundamentally, is considered a kind of emblem of contemporary culture broader than just the art trade. Mm. Well, it always feels like Art Basel works in collaboration with the host city. It feels like you have the fair, you have everything attached to the fair, but then the city benefits from art programs, from the influx of tourism, you know, what that what that brings. It doesn't feel like you just kind of land, you 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 decimate, you do what you gotta do and then you leave. It feels like there's the infrastructure is there now that it is an exciting prospect for a city to host the art fair. And that's true for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, I would not just say that we benefit the city. We also benefit from the city. You know, the city that the fair takes place in really shapes its character. You know, the in Miami, for example, when we went there, obviously we showed a lot more North American and Latin American galleries. Likewise, you know, Vamos a la Playa became sort of an underlying theme. Like you can do outdoor events in December at a time where the rest of the world, or at least the Northern Hemisphere, is a pretty miserable place to be outside at night, you know, and, and with Miami, we really, you know, interacted with the broader cultural scene of Miami, the fashion scene, the music scene, mm -hmm. the design scene. Um, likewise, when we went to Hong Kong, we wanted to do an Asian show. And so we decided that half of the galleries in that show had to be active in Asia. And we got heavily involved in supporting the Hong Kong Gallery Association, many of whose members were not taking part in our show. You know, likewise, we arranged visits to the studios um, in various parts of town. And so... For us, I think it's important not only to be a member in good standing of the city's cultural community, but also fundamentally, we believe that's what makes it interesting. If all the same, if it was all the same galleries and you were just flying to a different convention center, why would you do that? You know, for us, every show has to have its own character. Mm -hmm. And that character has to be greatly shaped by the city that it's in and, and it has to be rooted in its region. So as global director, you have three current fairs and an upcoming fair. You are a podcast addict. Apparently you listen at one times two the speed to get through more of them. <laughs> are you exhausted or do you have a huge team that you can trust that are able to cover a lot of this? Because as international, it isn't time zones and it, it's a lot of responsibility and pressure on you. And that's a lot of money that's floating around that you are kind of commandeering. 
So the answer to your question is is both. You know, especially right now with this fair coming up in Paris, which is an entirely new endeavor for us. Um, it's exhausting, but also it's really exhilarating to go to a city, one of the greatest cities in the world. And of course, being half French, it's especially exciting to me. Yeah, have you um, been pushing for that for a long time? Because no, of your, no, it uh, was kind of a, a it was. It was a pipe dream in the sense that I always thought that that the Grand Palais was an amazing center and that Paris in the fall is one of my favorite cities and certainly in its best season. But the idea, if you had asked me a year ago, do you think you'll ever run an art fair in Paris? I would have said clearly not. Um, but the second part of it is as much as I'm working really hard, so is the rest of my team. And this would never work without them. You know, we, the fact that we have great people on the ground in Asia, in New York, in Miami, in Paris is essential. You know, no, no, no one is successful by themselves. Um, and, and certainly the best thing I can do is to try to make everyone in my team successful to give them the coaching, the coordination of the time that they need. And there's never enough of my time. Let's be super clear, but you know, it is a, it's a team thing. And, and when I started or at Basel, we were 22 people total. I was employee number 22 doing the Art Basel show in Basel and in Miami Beach. And now we're coming up to 100 and it'll be more than that as we build out the Paris team, as we build out our digital things. And it's a completely different enterprise, but it's fundamentally about the same thing, which is about creating platforms for artists and galleries and for culture in general. And you've very much um, kind of gone very current in the sense that you're now presenting a podcast yourself. So your your love of other podcasts has led to you um, commandeering one. Um, what's that been like doing the podcast that we recently um, were had the privilege to be guests on? It's super interesting, and and I think in a way it goes back to my history as a journalist. You know, the idea of interviewing people, of teasing out the stories, of asking them, you know, probing questions. But it was really an outgrowth of the pandemic, you know, because when things shut down in early 2020 and we couldn't do fairs um, and I couldn't travel to biennials and fairs and museum shows and to see my team and to see the art world in general and all of us were disconnected from each other in this kind of radical shift. You know, I think um, there are very few industries where people traveled as much and as widely as in the art world. And to suddenly have all of that stop was like an enormous emotional whiplash for all of us. Mm. And so I went to my team and I said, you know this thing, Zoom, that we're using to do our meetings? How big a Zoom can you do? And they're like, well, if you pay enough money, you can do 5,000 or 10,000. I said, well, let's get that subscription. And we started doing weekly and bi-weekly Zoom conferences, panels with gallerists, with artists, like what's going on in this city or how are these different gallerists in different cities adapting to the pandemic or, you know, how do we see things changing in this suddenly digitalized market? And, you know, that landed well. I think it was very valuable for the mental health of ourselves, but also I was getting tons of messages like, oh, thank God, it's great to hear people's voices again. It's great to see their faces again. And people would put in tons of questions and, you know, at the height of the pandemic, when everybody was stuck at home, you know, we would have audiences that were as big as Carnegie Hall. We would have like two or 3,000 people following our Zooms, and then it would go on to Facebook Live and all that kind of stuff. And then I think the podcast was us as content producers, of us, you know, we built up a team even before the pandemic that regularly posts interviews with galleries, interviews with collectors, interviews with artists, articles, you know. And so 
for us, the podcast was a natural extension of that. And truth be told, I wasn't a huge podcast person before the pandemic, you know, but when you're stuck at home alone, like it's nice to have some voices around you, then not just the voices in your head, but actually the voices in your headphones, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, I think you, you had the same thing with talk art, you know, that suddenly the pandemic was this huge booster. And I think, um, but when we set out to do a podcast, we said, we don't want to do a podcast that's just about the art world. We wanted to do a podcast that reflected a broader notion of culture. And so we have had great artists and curators on the show, people like Doug Aitken, Jacoby Satterwhite, Daniel Birnbaum. Um, but we've also had people, you know, my, my first interviewee was David Adjaye. My second was Swiss Beats, you know. Um, my third was Kim Gordon talking with Lisa Spellman, the gallerist from 303. And then came Pamela Joyner, who's this amazing uh, philanthropist and, and business person, you know, has mm-hmm. a, this notion of like being an activist member of a board in the best sense of the word. And so we really wanted, then we had this really interesting interviews with Miranda July, who's almost undefinable as a cultural figure because she does so many things. Mm-hmm. Or with Otessa Moshfe, who wrote this cult book in the art novel called My, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. And so it was really interesting to talk about the art world with these people, mm. about how it was changing, but also how they saw it from their different perspectives. And then more generally about, about creation, the rituals around creation, the you know creating the conditions for creation and for innovation. Um, and so I think it, it generally reflects a bigger thing in the art world, which is that people are no longer respecting these kind of invisible walls. It's not like you're either a curator or an artist, you're either a sculptor or a painter. You know, I think there's this notion that we can play in all these different areas and I can run big international art fairs, but I can also do one-on-one intimate interviews with people who are not really in the art world per se. And, and that's all legitimate. And I think that's great. You know, I think we're all happy to get out of these cages that oh, somehow yeah. we let ourselves get thrown into. Yeah, switch lanes, take up all the space. It's, it's more fun, totally. I've heard some um, kind of crazy stories over the years about Art Basel. The one being there's, there's quite a tight uh, timed entry and there'd be collectors there like a bullet a gate trying to get in and you'd see them as they like there'd be security guards there holding them back and as the barrier was open they'd be leaping over getting in because I've seen someone do that I've actually seen someone jump over the turnstile <laughs> once and they got really told off and then delayed <laughs> but the thing is it's like I think that was you know going to art fairs now there's a lot of pre-sales you get sent a pdf of, of the booths and most of the work on the booth is sold before you even get there but there, I remember there being a policy that Basel doesn't allow pre-sales you can reserve potentially but you can't buy work so pizza collectors are literally running to their their favorite galleries to get the access to the work first of all i don't think our basel is different than any other fair in the sense that i think galleries send around images before the show to their collectors sometimes very strategically i remember david Werner one time only sending pdfs for the hong kong show to asian collectors because he wanted to build up an asian collector base you know Generally speaking, things are not actually sold. They're reserved, which is why you see people, you know, champing at the bit to get in because they've got one hour to see three works and say, yes, I'm in. Because, of course, something looks very different on a PDF than it does in person. And every Mm -hmm. gallery has had the experience. Robert, I'm sure you can attest to this, of people Mm -hmm. saying, yes, I totally want this and seeing it. Oh, well, maybe not. Or, well, you know, and I think, I think you really want people standing in front of the work before you actually sell it to them. And that's why you get that rush at the beginning. Um, you know, and I think it's, you know, on the other hand, I think there's a danger to that. And it's something I've talked about to gallerists, not in a 
um, not in an instructive way or a critical way, but just saying, you know, this is something you should think about, which is if you're here to meet new collectors, then it's a lot easier if you have something to sell them. So if you've pre-sold all this work to existing collectors, then it's much harder to start those conversations and those dialogues, you know, because you don't really have anything to offer them or certainly nothing that isn't on an iPad. And so I think, um, you know, there's this interesting dynamic and I think it's very tricky for gallerists because on the one hand, they want to meet new collectors at the show. Mm. On the one hand, on the other hand, they have an obligation to their artists to try to sell their work. Um, and of course, they have an obligation to the collectors who've been supporting their program for years and years through the most difficult periods and often buying the most difficult artists. And so it's a very tricky thing. You see... One of the things we've done is to extend the VIP days, you know, from one day to a day and a half or two days. And a lot of galleries like this, because of course you still get the people running in to try to close their reserves. But what it means is that everyone isn't quite so pressured. And, Mm. you know, the thing a gallerist hates, the one thing a gallerist, well, the thing a gallerist hates most is having no collectors in the booth. But almost just as difficult as having 10 great collectors in the booth and not being able to give them the attention that they would deserve. And so I think... To the extent that we can slow down the pace of the opening days, I think it's better for everybody involved. But there will always be those 150 artists that people are sprinting in to try to buy. I've heard that there's been collectors have gone in disguise as cleaners and they've sneaked really? in sneaked in before the fair doors <laughs> have opened so they can go and peruse all the booths and act like they're just no. sweeping up. Is that true, Mark? Has that happened? That, that, that is true. Um, people have people have posed as art handlers or as cleaners, <laughs> and obviously, that's not a thing that we encourage. And in fact, if galleries give people exhibitor badges who are collectors, one of the things I do every year is to literally look through every exhibitor badge, looking for collectors or looking for people who aren't actually part of the gallery's team, or you know, sometimes. I'll spot someone who I know isn't isn't you know private art dealer, and I'll say, well, why do they need to be there? And then sometimes I'll get a very credible explanation, like they've consigned three works and they want to make sure that they're properly installed, and that that makes sense. Right. But you know, obviously, you know, it's a uptown problem that people are trying to sneak into your fair and buy work ahead of time. But it's not fair. It's not fair to the other collectors, and it's not fair to the galleries because you'll have a gallery, you know, that comes in two days earlier and they've hung their booth and everything looks great. They're standing around, you know, in a starch shirt and nice shoes. And there are other people who are there like in a, you know, t-shirt and shorts, you know, hanging work. And suddenly they turn around and there's this collector they've been dying to meet forever. You really want the collectors to come in on the opening day where all the work is hung and all Mm -hmm. the gallerists are ready to see them. Um, But yes, it's absolutely true that people have tried many, many, many things to get in early to the fair. Do you think galleries are going to be presenting NFTs in this year's uh, fair? Because obviously NFTs during the pandemic have really taken off and it's become a big part that I know major galleries like White Cube and Sverner, I think, are now like hiring new members of staff to kind of look into that side of things and maybe Hauser and Worth as well. But um, is NFTs something that you would like to see at Art Puzzle? I'm 100% certain that people will be selling NFTs in relationship to works on their booth. Um, because it happened already in Hong Kong last year. And again in Basel, uh, the gallery Nagel Draxler had a booth that was really that was highly focused on NFTs. You had people, you know, Pace Gallery launched a new NFT minting project just before our Basel Miami Beach. And that's all okay. You know, I think um, I've always said 
if you want to know where our Basel is going, look where the artists are going. Mm-hmm. And the reality is a lot of artists are playing with NFTs and they're, they're fascinated by it as a new medium. Um, they're fascinated by it in terms of what it can potentially create in terms of resale rights and smart contracts that benefit them. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are doing interesting projects. Like I just heard about an NFT art project where um, if you don't sell it every six months, the NFT self-destructs. Or, oh, or Damien, oh, Hurst, really? Damien Hurst did this project where he, I think he had 10,000 prints and the, you bought the print and the NFT, but after a year, you had to either destroy the print or the NFT, right? Mm-hmm. You couldn't keep both. So I think it's it's there's a lot of conceptual work to be done with NFTs. And the problem with NFTs is they've gotten a bad rap because so much of the NFT art that's come out has just been really terrible, you know, or clearly just um, exploitative or, or super simplistic, low-level um, sometimes racist or sexist, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a lo- very much of a kind of bro land right now. And it doesn't have to be, you know, and I think people will say, you know, do you, are you for or against NFT art? That's like asking me, am I for or against canvas and oil paint? Yeah. You know, it's a medium and, and the more artists, some of them, people we know, like Simon Denny, for example, has done a lot of NFT work and he's someone who's been in a lot of biennials and shows with great galleries. Yeah, I love And that. some of them are artists we don't know, you know, and I think the reality is there's a whole generation which mm-hmm. is just starting to explore this. And I see it as a medium. I mean, when I think about NFTs, I think the two major things we need to keep in mind is this is a new medium and it's only starting to be explored. Yeah. And as always, great artists will do great things with a new medium. The same way that people did it with land art and word art and video art and photography and so on and so forth. Mm. But the other thing that's really interesting is that it creates a lot of possibilities um, for artists in terms of ownership or creator economy kind of things. And I think that's that's why I think you know we have to wait and see. And, and wherever possible in our case and in our gallery's case, try to spur the emergence of really great projects in this new space. Mm. I think we I interviewed um Jeff Coons the other day and he was talking about uh he's done an NFT recently which relates to a sculpture that will be uh flown off to the moon. <laughs> so it's all about moon phases and mm. I loved this idea of like a sculpture flying to the moon, you know, via the NFT as well being involved. It's very cool. I think with NFT what you're saying Mark is that we're all just waiting for the definitive NFT artists to kind of to crop up to go like there we go. There's there's you know like we've got our definitive photographers. We've got you know they every year we have brilliant contemporary but there's like art canon it's like there's not an art canon for nft art yet and i think we're waiting for that to happen yeah i think it's really just about probably people we don't know thinking about different conceptual approaches around ownership you know warhol said that that business is the best form of art you know and and i don't think that's necessarily true but certainly the contractual conceptual nature of nft is the fact that you can that they can be destroyed or self-destruct or you know that in essence an nft is is basically the ownership of a url which may or may not exist five years from now um the fact that it can be tied to a physical object and disjointed from a physical object makes it really interesting and and it's not a thing that i've really wrapped my head around but certainly i think it's it's way too early to jump to conclusions about what an nft is mean in the art world even though in the short instance what they've meant is a lot of people trading crappy images like meme stocks. 
mean, it was interesting. In March, we released the results of the newest Art Market Report, which is an annual report that Art Basel does with UBS. And it's done by Claire McAndrews, who's one of the leading economists around the art market. And she, of course, being this being 2022, looking back at 2021, looked at the NFT market. And there were two really interesting facts. And here I'm a little bit of a data geek, but bear with me. The one interesting fact was that in 2020, 70% of the market was primary market, meaning that 70% of NFTs were sold from an artist to a collector. In 2020, 70% of the market for NFTs was primary market, meaning it was artists minting work and selling it to collectors. In 2021, 70% of the market was resales, right? And even more astoundingly, the average number of days that an NFT was held, an art NFT was held, the average number of days that an art NFT was held was approximately 31 days. So basically, people are flipping these an average of once a month. You know, when I put this on my Instagram, someone wrote in and I decided to keep him anonymous, I mean, by agreement. And he said, I'm generally selling things the moment they're minted because I'm getting whitelisted getting the work, and then putting them into play. And there was just a few NFT artists who he was holding. But the point is, a lot of it is just like meme stocks right now. It's driven by hype and it's driven by Discord channels. But again, you know, you can't judge that entire phenomenon based upon this because, you know, reality is 99.9% of all paintings painted every day are something you wouldn't want in your living room, you know? Yes. Um, <laughs> you don't want, uh, uh, like, yes, exactly, Mark. Right, so I want to get away from the digital, back to the analog, back to Great. Art Basel. I've got, I've got one more question before we get on to our uh, finalizing questions. But So you said there's a floor plan, and you, you think about the narrative of galleries and where they're placed to each other. So these the galleries, do you put them in spots? And these galleries that are paying like $100,000, have you ever had any beef where they've been really upset, where they're, they can, they, they've requested a location and you've not put them in that location? Or people are like, I don't want to be next to that gallery. I don't like them. And do you get the sort of inter-gallery conversations like rearing up before an art fair? Well, it's not right before the art fair. It's usually three months before the art fair. Like you send out your floor plan and inevitably you get somewhere between... 20 and 60 text messages, emails, phone calls, WhatsApp messages, Instagram DMs, et cetera, saying, I need a different position. I need a bigger booth. I was promised this. I want a corner. I've been commissioning works all year long. I don't have enough room for them. Um, I want, I don't want a corner. I want a booth with three walls. I, you know, I don't want a booth with three walls. I want a corner. I don't want such a big booth. It's too much for me, or I don't want such a small booth. And so basically what we do is we ask everyone to be patient for a couple of weeks. And then we have like a resolution meeting where we try to basically take all these change requests and complaints and try to make as many people as happy as possible. And the reality is we never make everybody happy. Um, I mean, and, and it's a good thing that people want to be in the fair and want big booths. And I think, you know, sometimes you say, listen, you have to be patient. Like this year in Basel was very, very difficult because last year we had 272 galleries. And this year we have 289 galleries. And that's because a lot of galleries sat out the pandemic year because it was just too difficult for them. Or September when we had to have the fair was difficult for them because, you know, in America, that's when the market starts getting raring again. You know, we have people who, who were simply locked behind, behind quarantines and yeah. just couldn't make it to yeah, the show. Travel. It's impossible to travel. You know, and then of course you always want to have some, re some rejuvenation. You know, we, we brought into the fair 
this year, for example, um, two American galleries uh, that are very prominent within the the markets for African-American and African artists. Um, Jenkins Johnson's The Great Gallery from San Francisco and, and New York. And Marianne Ibrahim, who started in Seattle and then went to Chicago and just opened an amazing gallery on, on Avenue Matignon in Paris. Mm-hmm. And you want galleries like that coming into the show. You want galleries like Labor coming in from Mexico City. So you have you want to have this rejuvenation. And then we had a great fair. So it wasn't like there were a lot of obvious choices for galleries who would not be in the fair this year. Um, and of course, you had the galleries who were long-term clients, wonderful galleries, who you want to have. And so suddenly, you know, where in the p- last year we were able to give very big booths suddenly and and give people better positions than they'd had in the past. Suddenly you have those people who had those positions in the past coming back and you don't have as much space per gallery. And so it's a year where people needed to be patient. Sometimes that was more difficult than others. Got it. But it it is aside from getting in or not getting in the position and the size and the configuration of the booth are the most political issues that I deal with. Um, And to come back to your point before, when you make the floor plan for a fair, it's like having a dinner party. Mm. When you do a dinner party plus small, you think about like which people would have an interesting conversation. Do these people know each other? Do these people hate each other? You know, Um, this person doesn't speak English so well, but they speak Italian really well. So put them next to that Italian couple or, you know, um, this is a great artist and that's a great curator. Let's put them next to each other. Or, you know, this is kind of the senior table and that's the kid's table. And, you know, doing the, the placement for an art fair is exactly like that. You're trying to build neighborhoods. You're trying to build neighborhoods where you have similar galleries. I remember many years ago, I had what I thought was the smart idea of putting really young galleries next to people like Gagosian and White Cube. Mm. And I thought I was doing them a huge favor, but what they said is, you know, these people aren't interested in our artists. You know, we need to be next to other galleries like ourselves, you know, and, and you know, one gallerist said, well, I'm across the street from Gagosian at one of his dozen different locations. Um, and people go to his gallery and don't cross the street to come to my gallery. So putting us next to each other in a fair doesn't really benefit me. And so what you really want to do, and it gets interesting because of course you have like the young area and the historical area, but at some point you need transitionals, you know, so then you look for people who have a young program and historical artists. It's a super interesting, albeit super political kind of part of the job is building these ephemeral urbanisms, you know, where you have these synergies and where you bring together a young gallery from Brazil, you know, what you try to do is you try try to create these neighborhoods. So you'll bring like a, a young painting gallery from Brazil next to a young painting gallery from Brussels next to a young painting gallery from Los Angeles, or you put a bunch of galleries that are working the digital space next to each other. And, and the collectors don't know all of them, but they come to the gallery they know, and then they discover their neighbors. And when, you, when you hear about that happening, you know you've built this well. Yeah, it's mm. like a little hive yeah. mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mark, um, we ask every guest who comes on Talk Art two questions. Um, the first is, if you could do an imaginary art heist and take home any artwork from anywhere around the world, um, what artwork would you uh, steal? We can help you with cranes and vans mm-hmm. and helicopters. Mm-hmm. Um, or we could even like, you know, break into an art there. It changes every day. You know, right now I'm thinking about the Venice Biennial. I'm thinking about one of my favorite pieces from the Venice Biennial, which was Camille Enrault's breakthrough piece, Cause Fatigue, um, which was this really interesting video with a, um, a spoken word soundtrack. And there were all these images, these images opening up on the screen, you know, and different things. And it, I looked at it and I said, 
this is an amazing piece. And it's also amazing because 20 years ago, it would have been overwhelming for people. But now that we're used to living our life on 20 different screens at the same time, it actually works. We've learned to process mm. this degree of information coming at us at mm. the same time. You know, and I think that's, that's a really fascinating thing. I mean, on another day, um, I think I would probably want to steal one of the great Bacon portraits. I'd pretty much take any one of them, you know. But, you know, on the other hand, um, I just saw an amazing Goya show uh, at the Fondation Bayler a few weeks ago. Um, and it's, those are just breathtakingly dense paintings. And, mm. and when you really read Goya's titles and you think about when he was making these pieces, I mean, these are, are incredibly political, historically important pieces as well. And so, you know, I think on any given day, it could be, you know, it could be, you know, also um, some of the pieces that I like the most you can't steal because they're dance pieces by people like Isabel Lewis and Wu Tsang, for example. I mean, I also saw this amazing show at the Bourse de Commerce of these David Hammond pieces, you know. Mm. Um, but of course... I love you know, that space so much. That is it's it's incredible. Franz, you know, Francois Pino's space in Paris. I, I'm blown away by it. You know, when you have these tiny, tiny little totemic pieces, but then you have these cages at the end. And of course, yeah. when I think of the cages at the end, I think, well, why am I not saying Louise Bourgeois? You know, like so. It just it it really depends. I think um, on any given day, my answer to that would be different. And on today, it's ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> So the second question we ask is, what is your favorite color and why? Is that harder? <laughs> My favorite color is probably midnight blue because it's right on the edge between black and blue. And because black in itself is too severe, but that midnight blue really thinks of, makes me think of sort of that moment between the day and the night, you know, where, where you know, things often get kind of funny and things look, look different and, mm. and you're sort of, you're transitioning out of the hubbub of the day into one hopes a different kind of frenzy of the yeah. night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what's going to happen? It's exciting. And then one final question before we head off. Um, what is the best advice you've ever been given? This is a question that Russell's been asking quite a lot recently on the show and I actually really like that, that one. The best piece of advice I've heard is that a good life is one in which you make other people as happy as you can without damaging yourself and you make yourself as happy as you can without damaging other people. That's nice. And that's a delicate balance. Oh my, yeah, that's, that's, that's a gauntlet. You, are you a collector? Because you must be like a kid in a sweet shop if you are at these fairs. Because you must be getting early access and seeing what works are coming in and, and, and going, oh, I love these young artists. I mean, that is, that is a conflict of interest, I'm yeah. sure. But there must be young artists that every year you're really excited to see in the flesh and catch I've, up with the galleries. I've never bought work from galleries at our fairs. In fact, I haven't bought work since I started at Art Basel. And... I think if you were going to do a picture of conflict of interest, it would be someone running some of the most important art fairs in the world, buying art from their galleries. And I think it, because of this, um, if I was to be known to be buying work from a gallery, 
and other people thought that gallery wasn't very good and shouldn't be in the fairs or shouldn't be getting such a good position, people would say, oh, Mark is protecting his investment. Or if I went to a gallery oh, yeah. and I said, I'd really like to buy this work. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, it's reserved for you know museums or it's reserved for more important collectors. And then a few years later, the committee decided not to include them. And these are committees in which I don't even vote. People would say, oh, he got his revenge slowly. You know, so so not doing business with galleries is is I think essential, mm. you know, so that people will criticize things that we do. And that's natural, but you don't want to give them the justification that it's for my own personal gain. You know, mm. people might question my judgment, people might question, you know, our priorities, people might say you should have let this gallery in, or you should have kicked that gallery out, or this gallery shouldn't have such a good booth. But it should never be perceived as something which is tied to my own financial interest or my own mm-hmm. collecting activities. And so I think mm-hmm. that's just something I can't do right now. And it's okay. You know, I collect stories. I collect friends. I collect, in my mind, I have amazing artworks that, that you know, are really interesting to me. This has been completely fascinating and mm-hmm. has kind of... Um, unearthed a lot and revealed a lot and it's been brilliant talking to you mark thank you so much you are a very busy global director but you've given us a really solid hour of talking about Basel. yeah thank you so much and for everyone listening you can also check out mark's amazing podcast which is called art Basel intersections and we are guests on it for the new season which uh, i think starts at the end of june and our episode will be out in july and it was so exciting so definitely check that out and actually, they've had quite different guests to what we've had. So it is, um, you know, you, you, there'll be a lot there to discover. Um, it's very Absolutely. complimentary to what we're doing as well. And we, we're really enjoying listening to it. So thank you so much, Mark. And um, how long is the fair on for in, at the moment? The fair starts comes on, out, I think, when on it, Monday. When That's the opening of Unlimited, which is our amazing space that we have. It's unique within the art fair world. It's 20,000 square meters it has about 70 pieces in it from artists from all over the world, you know, very, you know, very well established artists, but also artists that you might not have heard of. And, you know, that's the Monday. And then on the Tuesday, the fair, it, you know, the, the gallery, the space is open, you know, the 289 galleries from all over the world. So it's a great, it's a great thing. And I think to come back to the point you made much earlier, Robert, you know, when people say to me, I don't like contemporary art, I don't get contemporary art. I would say, if you can, go to Art Basel, look at every work in every booth, and it is unfathomable to me that there's nothing that would speak to you in that hall. Agreed. Yes. Well, we recommend visiting, um, and it's so exciting this year because I feel like more people can travel than before, so um, I'm sure it's going to be booming and very exciting for everyone to see each other. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back very soon. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Oh, and Mark... Where on Instagram are you? Do you have an Instagram? Well, Art Basel is at Art Basel, and Mark Spiegler is at Mark Spiegler. With a C, not a K. With a C, not a K. (laughs) Unless you want to look at a different feed altogether. No, we don't, Russell Tovey. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon. Bye, Mark. Thank you so much. Bye, Bye, guys. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.